I'm Michaela from The Millennial Outside. I'm a Nature Valley girl, a pasta addict, and a big fan of the phrase, you win some, you lose some. I wear lots of hats. This is me sharing my musings on the simple things in life that I find extraordinary. Can I tell you a story? Pantone 7578C, ochre, terracotta, rust. This is the color I've been drawn to over and over for the past year or two. How do you describe a color when color itself is a descriptor? Are colors inherent, or can we only fathom a color when we have context for it? Most ancient languages did not have a word for blue. Since blue doesn't exist very often in nature, it couldn't be described. It was not even seen as distinct from green. When my husband first explained this concept to me, I couldn't believe it. The sky is blue. The ocean is blue. Right? But then, I read a study on a tribe in Namibia that has no word for blue, but multiple words for different shades of green. Shown a screen with a circle of green squares, with one blue square, these people struggled to find or name the difference. But when shown the same screen, with the blue substituted for a slightly different shade of green, they spotted it right away. I stared at the diagram for a full minute and couldn't pick out the different shade of green until it was pointed out to me. When we got married, I had all of my bridesmaids pick out their own dresses. My only stipulation was that they all be the color wine. I'd spent hours on Pinterest honing in on the color I wanted. Wine was an obvious shade to me. On my wedding day, all seven of my bridesmaids lined up beside me. Their dresses ranged from deep red to almost purple. The color wine had no inherent meaning. After all, a glass of red can range in color far more than my bridesmaids' dresses had. I could only spot the differences because I'd spent so much time creating them. As a kid, I was drawn to pastels. Pink and lavender and spring green. As a teenager, I loved extreme colors. Neon pink and teal and, of course, black. As I get older and fall every day more into my truest self, or so it feels, I find myself drawn to the colors of the earth. Olive greens, mustard yellows, and most of all, Pantone 7578C. I hemmed and hawed all spring before purchasing a gorgeous linen duvet cover and ochre from Australia. I rarely splurge on material objects that don't facilitate a hobby. Kitchen implements and ski gear and a mountain bike, sure, but an object just to spark joy? Not my style. But I couldn't get the color out of my mind. It sat on our bed for six months now, and every morning when I wake up, the sight of it makes my heart happy. I'm under it as I write, and the color is so alive I swear it literally glows. Mixed with the natural texture of linen, it brings me to faraway corners of the world, though I never leave my bedroom. I realized very quickly, as I always hang up laundry on the bed, that half of my wardrobe is this same color. One of my favorite places in the world is Castle Valley outside of Moab. There's no real reason this place holds a piece of my heart. There were no formative moments had there, no picture-perfect trips. Surrounded on all sides by the desert sandstone, the ancient monoliths, I feel alive. Several years ago, Topher and I headed to Moab for a few days, leaving after work and driving into the wee hours of the morning. I knew nothing of our destined campground. We turned our headlights off and slipped into the first empty campsite, trying to set up the car to sleep in as quietly as possible. The next morning, when the growing light from the not-quite-risen sun woke me, I put in my contacts and was immediately breathless. The rising sun painted the desert sky pink and orange, and we were surrounded on all sides by the most incredible rock formations. Towering cliffs and thin towers and fingers reaching for the heavens. 
They were all brushed purple by the incoming rays. That was my first experience in Castle Valley. When the sun finally made it into the sky, I was surrounded on all sides by Pantone 7578C. I love the desert. It wasn't a place we ever went growing up, but as I've discovered bits and pieces of it as an adult, I've fallen in love. There is something about the desert, said the late conservationist Edward Abbey, that the human sensibility cannot assimilate. One of the first real times I experienced this biosphere that the human sensibility cannot assimilate, I was 15. We floated down the Green River in Utah, under walls carved by the muddy water that propelled us, decorated with art from ancient peoples. On our last night, my sister and I zipped ourselves in our tent early to avoid the relentless mosquitoes, and I watched through the screen as the sunset lit up the sky and the rock formations turned from red to inky black. Those colors are still etched in my memory. It was one of the first times I realized that color has poetry. Standing in Castle Valley, you'd be hard-pressed to find a place that seems more devoid of life. There are few animals. The sparse plants that grow are scrubby and stay close to the ground, or the mighty Colorado. Yet this place feels so alive. The ancient rocks have seen millennia go by before me and will stand through time to see another pass beyond me. I feel the same silent thrum of life standing under the saguaros in Tucson and on the high desert of the eastern plains where I grew up. There is something so alive about the rocks and the dirt and the blue sky and the hardy plants that grow so excruciatingly slowly that they might be rocks themselves. Pantone 7578C appears in my life in more places than just the desert. It's the color of the dirt roads to my favorite camping areas. It's the color of the pots that hold the succulents from our wedding. It's the color of fallen leaves on an autumn walk and a pumpkin spice latte. It's the color of my favorite pasta sauces, pumpkin or tomatoes finished with cream. It's the color of my well-worn overalls and the dust on the car after a long adventure. It's the color of my hair sometimes when the light hits just right, thanks to my Irish ancestors. I dug deeper into ochre, wondering what lent my linen sheets their glow, and I started to understand that primal pole. Ochre is a pigment made of iron oxyhydroxide, iron, oxygen, and hydrogen. This pigment can range from bright yellow to deep brown, but hematite, a specific iron oxide compound, and a beautiful deep black gemstone, is what often gives my favorite Hewitt's glow. Hema is the Latin prefix that means blood. The same element that gives blood its rich red color, iron, is also what creates hematite's red properties. Ochre is the oldest used pigment in the world. Homo sapiens and Neanderthals alike used it as far back as 300,000 years ago. The pigment was used in tattoos and body paint, in burials, and to decorate the natural world all over the globe, from Australia to Africa to Europe to Asia to our own continent. There's science that suggests ochre was instrumental to our development as humans. To create that beautiful shade of red, the pigment often has to be heated. The ancient intersection of art and science was a milestone along our timeline of development as humans. In the same way I use a camera or a microphone or a computer to create art today, our ancestors used science to create the beautiful shade. One paleontologist has hypothesized that ochre might even be linked to our intelligence. Increased absorption of iron through tattoos, body paint, and other forms of ingestion may have improved our ancestors' brains. Suddenly, this color is about so much more than my personal affinity. It symbolizes the intersection of nature and the human world. We are made of ocean water and stardust, but we are also made of iron. We are not so different from the red desert dirt under our feet. 
I look at our duvet and am inspired by the same forces of nature that inspired Neanderthals to cave paint. Those ancient artists whose handprints I floated under in the Utah desert felt the same pull. Across the world, tribal women in Namibia still paint their hair in Pantone 7578C today. The color is so alive because it's a color that connects me to the earth, to all of humanity, to places filled with ancient secrets, unhindered by ephemeral plants or snows or wildlife. We see the earth as it was, as it is, and as it always will be in Pantone 7578C. And that is extraordinary. We have no ads here, so instead of giving a minute of your day to some company that wants to sell you something, I'm asking you to give one minute of your day to yourself. The Folio website I used to source my soothing nature sounds suggested the sound of footsteps on a thousand Lego bricks. As interesting as that sounds, we're sticking with a winter stream today. As I write this, my heart is heavy. I'm not sure I understood what the expression meant until this year. Fires are raging miles from my home, swallowing everything in their paths. It feels like every time I check the news, a new one of my favorite places is about to be devoured. This year has been one heavy thing after another. The world ravaged by a silent killer. Society breaking open to confront racism. A nation deeply divided, hateful of each other over politics. The words we used to talk about the past seven months are worn out. I know you're tired of hearing about this year. I'm tired of hearing about this year. Most of us aren't living in quarantine anymore. For better or for worse, the world has opened up, has moved on. But I wanted to share this essay with you that I wrote back in April, when only the first few layers of our collective grief had been laid. I still don't know how to process this year. I don't know if I ever will. And so, I bake bread. For the first time, in a long time, years perhaps, we are forced to be with our thoughts, our feelings. There is no commute, no drinks with friends, no yoga classes, no weekend mountains to climb. Work is slow, hours are cut. There are no concerts to attend, no Sunday dinners to go to, no airplanes to get on. In those first few weeks, there were perennial to-do items to finally tackle, Zoom happy hours to arrange, a dozen evenings worth of Netflix to watch, an apartment to clean from top to bottom. But then, as the under-the-sink cabinets were organized, and the pile of books next to the bed was read, and the screen limit timers on our phones chimed, we were finally left to think, to feel. And we baked bread.
Sourdough starters bubble on our counters, and the smell of caramelizing bananas comes from our ovens, and we roll sticky buns and pour oil over focaccia dough and griddle English muffins. Aisle 12 is as barren as the streets of downtown, a smudge of flour here and there, a stray bag of cherry chips, the only sign that there was once life here. The only place sadder in the whole store is the toilet paper aisle, now stocked with Clarence Easter candy. The dishes pile high as we mix flour and water and salt. Need, rest, need, rest, repeat. The sound of the oven beeping the only reminder what time it is. What day is it? Sunday? Tuesday? We push aside wilted cilantro as we reach for the butter. Has it been ten days already? Is it time to don masks and head to the store again? At first, we bake because it's something to do. And that's what we do as a society. We do. Especially if everyone on the internet is doing it. We shape the first loaf, bring it to the window with the good light, snap a photo for Instagram, and slather it with butter. Check. Then, we find ourselves going to the grocery store to do our shopping early in the morning, while there's still bags of flour on the shelves. We snag one and hesitate. Maybe two, to be safe. We bake then, because there's something ritualistic about it. We bake to watch ingredients as mundane as flour and water create magic. We bake because the crumb was too dense, the shape not quite right. We took it out of the oven too early, too late. The hydration was off. The butter was lonely. We bake because we feel the pull, the draw, to a skill lost to a rushed world. In May of last year, there was no time to feed a starter, to knead dough every hour. There was no time to bake. Now, we have nothing but time. Our great-grandmothers mixed water and flour every day shaping loaves or rounds of nan or flats of tortillas. What was once commonplace has been replaced by plastic packaging or square readers at the farmer's market. We bake because it feels right to take humble things and create nourishment. And then, as we weigh flour and water for the fourth, fifth, sixth time, we realize we feel sadness. As we knead the dough, frustration wells up, a sense of grief as we carefully shape the loaf. For every loss, every uncertainty of right now. For every heartache and transgression and trauma of the past. The tears come as we scrub at the flour-caked bowl. Resignation as the timer ticks down. And then, finally, as the loaf comes out of the oven, a spark of joy. We don't bake bread to escape the anxiety-producing, seemingly impending doom of the world around us. We don't bake bread to ignore the ocean flood of feelings that well up. We don't bake bread to escape the endless soundtrack of our thoughts, a hamster spinning on a wheel. We bake bread because it's cathartic. We bake bread because there is magic in the simplicity and healing in the process and balm in the smell of melting butter. A moving meditation, like climbing a mountain or finding warrior pose. There is no certainty anymore, but the little things, a perfectly ready crust, the way the golden butter pools into every nook and cranny, the taste of the yeast we fermented ourselves, remind us that we are here, and we are alive, and we are okay. And that, that is a reason to feel joy. And so, we bake bread. Follow Sea Salt and Parm on Instagram, and don't forget to rate, subscribe, comment, and all those things podcasters normally ask for. You know the drill.